Have you ever changed your mind about something big in life? Now, I realize we all change our minds about lots of things, but I'm asking, have you ever changed your mind about something really big? Maybe, it had, maybe when you were younger, you said, you know, I'm never going to get married. But then you found the right one and you married them. Maybe you went to school for a career and you got out of school, you got that job, and then you said, I don't like this. I need something different. And you made a change of vocation. Have you ever made a big, big change of mind decision? It might have been about a relational thing, a vocational thing, even a financial thing. I've got a kind of a funny one to share with you. One day I bought a car, and as soon as I drove it off the lot, I said, I shouldn't have bought this car. But the good thing was I bought it from a car company that said, you have three days, no questions asked, to return this car. So the next morning I humbled myself and went there and said, here's the keys, and they said, thank you very much. I changed my mind. I repented of buying that car. Well, on a greater, greater scale, on a a much bigger scale, today we're talking about changing your mind about Jesus. Changing your mind about Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. And if you are able, please stand with me to read God's word. We're going to read verses 28 through 32. Now, before I read, let me say, if you are using the New American Standard Bible, what I read from the ESV now, which agrees with the King James and the NIV, is going to be different in your NASB. It just happens that this is one place. And I read the NASB for 28 years. I love that that translation. But the ESV, which we've been using now for about two or three years at Grace, has a different wording than NASB does. So, just know this when I read 28, 29, 30 and it's different in your Bible the meaning of this passage does not change one bit okay just keep that in mind okay Matthew, 20, Matthew 21 verse 28 these are the words of Jesus what do you think a man had two sons and he went to the first and said son go and work in the vineyard today And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Lord God, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is speaking. And you are the one who is teaching. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us. Lord, that you would give us understanding into this passage. And that you would change our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In case you're wondering, here is what the NASB reads. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go today and work in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir, and did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing, but he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterwards he regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter. 
So the translators in the NASB just switched those two verses. It doesn't change the meaning at all. Now, we skipped ahead a a long ways last week, all the way to chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. But now we are back in in line with our verse-by-verse study in Matthew. We are now in chapter 20, back in chapter 21 where we belong. But last week we dealt with honoring God by honoring man. Tried to settle the question of why it is good to do so. But we're back in a passage that is, I would call, a relatively simple and straightforward passage. It is very clear about what it teaches, even if you have a translation that has the verses uh, mixed a bit. But comparatively, uh, compared to the other passages we've looked at recently in Matthew, this is a very simple and straightforward message. What is going on is that the Jewish religious leaders' hypocrisy is being exposed They are being shown for what they really are. They're being exposed as frauds. They didn't listen to what John taught. So how shall they enter into a dialogue now with Jesus? As the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry put it, those that imprison the truths they know are justly denied the further truths they inquire after. They had been challenging Jesus' authority And now that challenge to the authority is being exposed through three parables that Jesus speaks. This is the first. He had given three really symbolic actions in coming into Jerusalem. He had entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, presenting himself as the true king and Messiah. He had cleansed the temple, therefore, thereby restoring it to its true function as a house of prayer, not as a den of robbers. He had also healed the blind and the lame, but also he had cursed the, fruit, the fruitless fig tree, symbol of any of those who would not believe. But now he balances that out with three significant parables. The two sons. Next week we'll look at the tenants, and then after that, the wedding feast. Just like in chapter 13, Jesus takes situations that are common in the culture of the time and uses them to draw our attention to very important matters. All three parables emphasize the kingdom of God. All three show that some will enter the kingdom while others who will not believe but who expect to enter will not. There's this opposition coming at Jesus and it's not coming from the unbelieving world. It is coming from the religious elite of his day. Those whom Psalm 118 verse 22 describes as the builders who rejected the most important stone in the building. So let's look at this first parable. The parable of the two sons. By the way, two very different sons. Verse 28, Jesus asked a question. What do you think? Jesus is in control of the situation. He is the number one authority. He is God. And what he is saying to them with this question, what do you think, is saying, you started this conversation, I'm going to finish it. He's saying, you're not getting off the hook. You're accountable. You're liable. You're not exempt. What do you think? And so he's challenging them. He tells this parable. A man asked his sons to work in the vineyard. It's a normal thing for a father to do, to ask a son to go work out in the yard. And one son says he won't, but he changes his mind and he goes. 
The other son says he will. And by the way, the one who says I will, it, it basically is the idea that he was lying to his father, deceiving his father with no intention of going. But he says he will, but he doesn't. And this is very simple. It's just like those that we are expecting to belong to the kingdom of God are the ones that are rejecting the Messiah. They had refused to believe John the Baptist. Now they're refusing to believe in Jesus. So Jesus asked them a very simple question in verse 31. Which one of these sons did the will of the Father? Which one obeyed? Which one did what his father wanted? By the way, here, the will of the Father would equate to believing the gospel. But which one did the will of the Father? Very simple, easy answer. The one who actually did the work. Not the one who said he would go and didn't, but the one who first refused, first disobeyed, and then obeyed. That's the one who did the will of the Father. Very simple. So what Jesus then says to them is, okay now, since that's the case, and by the way, this is one of the first only parables that Jesus gives a direct, immediate, personal application to what he is saying to the people he's saying it to. And so he says to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. There wasn't anything that would, that would upset them more than what Jesus said here. There wasn't anything that Jesus could say that would infuriate them more than these words. Tax collectors and prostitutes. In their minds, the scum of society worse than Gentiles. To them, a tax collector was the worst kind of traitor you could be to your people. They were merciless extortioners and they were to be rejected. To them, a prostitute was grossly immoral and couldn't even be, you couldn't even be in their presence without be, being, um, un, becoming unclean. And so these two groups, Jesus is using to give them a lesson. He's saying they're going into the kingdom before you. Why? Because when they heard the message, they repented and they believed. Now, did every tax collector and prostitute repent and believe? No. But many were. And these religious leaders weren't. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is going to belong to those who look like the least likely candidates, Jesus is saying. And just like in this parable, in real life, those who at first refuse to listen to John's messages and repent change their mind but these religious leaders could have and they didn't they had this stubborn unbending refusal this ongoing refusal to to believe to repent and it shut them out of the kingdom even when others that they deemed not worthy were entering verse 32 jesus says but john came in the way of righteousness you didn't believe him you didn't believe him you did not repent these tax collectors and these prostitutes did believe him and repent. And you even saw changed lives parading in front of you and you still wouldn't repent and believe. So he's saying you're lost, you're excluded, you're, you're on your way to hell. But then what he's also saying is, 
but there's still hope for you. Your heart's still beating, you're still breathing, you can still repent and believe. And the reason we know that is because Jesus, in, in pointing out their sin, is acting in grace. Exposing their sin was graceful because he was giving them chance to repent and believe. Verse 32, he says, For John came in the way of righteousness. It's taking us back to verse 25 when he asked the question, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From man or from God? And when he, when he used that phrase, the baptism of John, he was referring to John's whole ministry, that of the forerunner to the Messiah, that of someone pointing clearly to Jesus, like that big neon sign, Jesus saves. John came in the way of righteousness, which means he came in agreement with the gospel truth. He came in line with God. He came in line with the word of God. He came in line with Jesus. And so Jesus here is showing what the right response on their part should have been. Very simply, you should have repented, you should have believed. That's it. This is what should have happened. And even when you saw it and you didn't do it, it indicts you even more. John came literally with the path of righteousness. With the message of righteousness. And that message contained in it an obligation. The message of righteousness that, that came through John, the gospel truth that he was pointing to, is an obligation of obedience to that message that was preached and practiced by John. The way of righteousness is the way of Jesus. John pointed the way to the kingdom, which sinners could enter into and were now entering, but these religious leaders were excluded by their unbelief. Now the preaching that, that John was doing included a, a demand this was not an easy believism message that he was preaching there was a demand attached to to what he was saying the demand was for repentance for for life change as evidence of inward transformation it's the same message the gospel gives it's the same message of the gospel that we preach if your heart is changed by jesus you're going to want to live differently the Bible doesn't give an example, uh, a good example of someone who says they come to faith in Christ but has no life change. James very clearly said it, faith without works is dead. If there's no attesting works, if there's no fruit in the life, then there's probably no root in the life. If your heart is changed, you're going to want to live differently. If you love Jesus, you're going to want to please Jesus. D.A. Carson said this, the, the religious leaders didn't believe John's testimony even after seeing society's vilest sinners repenting believing him and his message even this constant parade of people that were having their lives changed didn't change their thinking Jesus says you should have changed your mind and believed he's pointing out the righteous response he's pointing out the right response that they should have had the first thing is that they should have changed their minds they should have repented. Verse 29 and verse 32 has this word, changed his mind. The son changed his mind. Verse 32, you did not change your minds. It's the Greek word metamelomai. It means change your mind. It means to repent. This should happen. Romans chapter 2 speaks of repentance in the context of God's righteous judgment on those who reject him. 
Romans chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says, Because of your hard and unrepentant hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Everyone should repent, basically, is what Jesus is saying. Everyone should change their minds about Him and about themselves. They should stop thinking that they're the center of the universe and that they're God, and they should acknowledge the one true God, and they need to repent before Him. The righteous right response is to change your mind in repentance and also to believe. That's what Jesus said. He put them right together. You didn't, verse 32, you didn't change your minds and believe Him. So change your mind in repentance and believe Jesus in faith. Repentance and faith. Those two things go hand in hand. But a lot of people are trying to make God in their own image. A lot of people want a God that they can, that they can control, that they can harness, and that they can then have no change in their life. Are you trying to make God in your image, or are you allowing God to remake you into His image? Are you trusting in your own righteousness, which the Bible calls filthy rags, or are you trusting in Christ's true righteousness and heaven's true riches? The religious leaders of Jesus' day and these that they were, he was speaking to were blind to their own condition. They couldn't see past their own ideas. He had pointed it out to them and they still refused to change. And John preached it, Jesus preached it, Paul preached it, Peter preached it, James preached it, Life change as evidence of inward transformation is required. Not the kind of life change that you add on and you tack on and you make it look like something real, but something real that comes from an inward change that God does and it, the fruit comes out by God's Spirit. James said, faith without works is dead. So life change as evidence of inward transformation is what's getting pointed at here. And also a life of continual repentance. A life that loves to repent. A, a belie- if you're repenting, I, I like to say you're probably a believer. If you are repenting of your sins, you're probably a believer in Jesus. Because believers in Jesus continually repent of their sins. It's not a one-time occurrence at the, at the beginning of your relationship with God. It is an ongoing example, an ongoing um, discipline in your life as God leads you to it. As you live in grace, as you live in mercy, as you become aware of, of, of trying to trust in your own righteousness, even if you've walked with Jesus for years. You repent. You turn from your sins and go back to Jesus. Now, lots of times we foolishly think we're the center of the universe, don't we? Back in school, you know, there was the uh, big world map, and America was always right in the middle. It's interesting how we Americans put ourselves right in the middle of things. Well, that's what we do when we build our own world map, don't we? We put ourselves right in the middle. Everything kind of goes out from us. We're the center of the universe. We are so wrapped up in our stuff, our thoughts, our, our ideas, 
and we think that everything revolves around us. We foolishly think that. We are not the center of the universe. God is. So everyone who comes to the point where they change their mind about who they are and change their mind about who God is will live with God forever because they will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus wants all people to repent. I told you this was simple. Repent and believe. Jesus wants all people to repent, to change your mind about Jesus and and who you are and who he is and believe. Trust him. You change your mind about Jesus and Jesus will change your life. You got to believe the gospel. Repentance and faith must, must be in the context of believing the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's the good news regarding what, who God is and what God has done and accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, namely salvation. If you think about it, the entire Bible tells the story of the lengths to which God went in order to bring glory to himself and to save sinners. God's word prepares us to get that message. It points us to that message. It recounts that message. It celebrates the triumph of that message. Let's say you're a believer. And you've kind of been floating through life like a prodigal, like a kite without string. And you're just out there and and you know you've got to come back home and you need to to repent obediently. You know, I like to say we call unbelievers to faith and repentance. And we call believers to faith and obedience. But really we call believers to faith and obedience and repentance. Because if you're obedient, you will be repentant. You will always be loving to repent of your sins because Jesus is the one who took care of your sins, who died in your place to to pay for your sins. I can't picture, and the Bible can't picture, a believer, a true believer, who isn't wanting to repent of their sins. So if you're a believer, you've got to be all about the gospel, not just for salvation, not just getting in the door, but for living every moment of every life, every day. You've got to realize the gospel is just as important for a, a new believer and for someone who has walked with Jesus for years. The gospel, the Bible says, is to be regarded as of first importance to our Christian life. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, if you know this message, then your heart should rejoice with this message. If you don't know this message, you need to latch on to it and believe it. It takes a yielded heart and life. If you're not a believer and you need to start your relationship with God, you need to start it off right because if you start it off wrong, everything else will go uh, off base. It begins with the gospel, the good news that you can be saved from sin and its ultimate penalty. If you understand and believe the gospel, it becomes the best news you've ever heard in your whole life and ever will hear. What's that good news that God graciously gives us in the Bible? Well, it's the news that he created and owns everything, including you. We have these words right here on our, on our website, our Grace Orange website. God created everything and owns everything, including you. And God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. And, and he requires your perfect obedience to his holy requirements. And, and, but you've broken that. You've gone against what he wants. 
And so you will pay the eternal penalty for your sins, as Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages of sin is death. What you deserve for your sins is death. Separation from God. And you realize you can't save yourself because the Bible tells you that, and you know it by your own experience. You can't save yourself by your own good works. Titus chapter 3 reminds us of that. For those who are believers, it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you realize that truth. You realize that Jesus came to earth as both God and sinless man. And that he showed his love by dying on the cross to pay sin's penalty. A substitutionary death in your place. And he rose from the grave. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And is alive today and is coming back. But it's not just enough to take those truths and, and say, check, I got it, I believe it, and walk away. The demons believe and shudder, the Bible tells us. It's not enough to just say, I believe those things. What needs to take place is that you then need to repent of all that dishonors God. You say, I love Jesus, so I don't want to dishonor Jesus. And you must believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the the one you want to be in charge of your life and the one that saves you from your sin, and then be willing to follow him. Say, okay, if that's the case, if he's my Lord and Savior, then I am going to follow him and do whatever he says. And it's right here in the Bible. People look all over the place and say, I want to know what God wants me to do. But they've never read the whole Bible all the way through. They don't even know that much, and they want to know something else. Until you've read this through a few times, don't even ask the question. Because you'll know as God renews your mind as you go through the Word of God. These religious leaders should have changed their minds and believed they didn't. And they had that, that long line of people going by them that were doing that. They had testimonies of people whose lives were being changed by Jesus right there in front of them. Just like we hear testimonies of people and you can give your, your story of how Jesus changed your life. I'm going to share with you two stories today of people whose lives were changed by Jesus. One you probably knew, the other you've never heard of. And their stories are mirrored by literally thousands upon thousands of people who have had similar experiences as God has gotten a hold of their life and transformed them by the grace of God in Christ. The first person, you may not have known him, but he, he has, has been coming to grace for two years. He would go to third hour every Sunday and sit right up here in front. They would wheel him in in a wheelchair. He was 98 years old. His name was Duke Christian. We just had his memorial service Thursday. His real name was Quail Caesar Christian. So now you know why they called him Duke. And I would talk to him every week because he was on time to church and he was like the only one in the room. (laughs) And so we would have some nice conversations and he would trash talk me about USC and UCLA 
because that family is really weird about USC, so you know where the rest of them get it. Um, 98-year-old man who made Grace Orange his church home for the last two years. I hope you got to meet him. I met him when he was 96. I don't think I've ever said that before except for last Thursday. I met someone when they were 96. Put it in perspective. He was born January 21st, 1914. My grandmother was born in 1916 and died in 1994. And she lived a pretty long life. This guy outlived most of his contemporaries. Duke. Of him, a family member wrote, in the 25 years I've known him, the last two years have been a time when I grew to truly understand what an amazing example of a God-fearing and God-loving man he truly was. His relationship with God was evident in everything I know of him. From his immediate and unmistakable life change the very same day he became a Christian. I heard the story. 1949. He becomes a believer and immediately changes the way he was living. I won't go into too many details, but he poured his old life down the drain. He said, I'm gonna, I got a new life in Jesus. I'm not going to do this, this, and this anymore because that doesn't, that doesn't match up with a follower of Christ. A real life change that his own son told me, we saw it the very first day. Praise God. They go on to say from his immediate and unmistakable life change to the way he loved his wife and family and the way he accepted the limitations of this life as he experienced many losses of friends, family, and personal freedoms that most of us will never endure. Most of us won't live to be 98. He had to go to a lot more funerals than we will probably have to. He had to go through a lot more losses because he outlived most of his contemporaries. This family member said, what I didn't know firsthand until the last two years is how faithfully and completely he lived out his beliefs on a daily basis. I had a front row seat to see Grandpa Duke read his Bible every day, lamenting that his eyes were causing him issues, so now he could only read two chapters a day. I've watched him accept the challenges of old age and very old age with grace and dignity in situations where there was no grace and dignity to be found. I've watched him profess his faith in Christ to anyone who will listen, even in a time when he barely had control of his own thoughts and speech. About a week before he died, we all thought he was going to pass away, and so the family was at, the, at the, the hospital saying their goodbyes. But the guy's strong, and he lived another week. And in that last week, I believe it was the day before he went to be with Jesus, he shared the love and grace of Jesus with one of his nurses. And she told the family about it after the fact. Here was a man who was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. His story is mirrored by literally thousands upon thousands of people who have had similar experiences. Each person's story is unique, but there is this similarity about being changed and your mind being changed about God and about yourself. And then faith and repentance come out. They go hand in hand, just like Jesus puts them right next to each other. Change your minds and believe. He was a man in love with Jesus and the Word of God. That's what people who love Jesus do. They love the Word of God. Now, this other person, you don't know him. You don't even know his name. I only talked with him for about two or three days. His name was David Chanel. He was 26 years old. We just got news this week that he died on Tuesday, I believe. He was from Philadelphia. 
in a neighborhood that you would not park your car and walk through that neighborhood unless you knew you had a safe house to go to. My daughter Alexandra uh, served there all summer long in, in this urban hope uh, ministry and my friend Ed Lewis wrote me this about David's life. He said, apparently David just woke up from a nap in the late afternoon with chest pains and called his mom as to whether he should go to the hospital and she said yes. Just then he collapsed and they called 911 and he never recovered. He was saved on March 14th from a non-Christian home. When I met him, he'd only been a believer for three months. 26-year-old guy. He used to come to youth events at Urban Hope, but he never responded. He was doing well, especially recently. He finished a discipleship Bible study called First Steps just that day. He had been with Tommy that afternoon. He had been with Tommy that afternoon for discipleship. He had changed a lot. He went to prayer every morning and was working for Kingdom Kids and ran camera for the church and visited kids and worked all week at Camp Conquest and was in Jonathan's wedding and went to all the church events and helped set up for Tuesday night family night groups. Let me just say, doing all those things will never get you to heaven. It'll make you tired. But the reason he did all those things is because the church became his family and he was there every time the doors were open. It was just the way it was for him. He was always praying for his older brother, Josh, still not a believer. He was not into drugs, but he, he was into selfishness and video games and wasting his life. He was lazy, but God changed him and was changing him. David Chanel. He volunteered daily at Urban Hope and went, at, went to an event the Monday before. He was baptized in July um, in the ocean. He led his friend Tyron to Jesus. He shared with Tyron that he needed to turn his life over to Christ. He invited him to Urban Hope. Tyron made a decision for the Lord. That story is your story. It's my story. Anyone who's come to faith in Christ I love hearing about how someone comes to faith in Christ. Sometimes we're deeply aware that life on earth is not all there is. And when we get to that point, we can really make some significant decisions in life. It's usually at that point that we make those big change of mind decisions. When all is said and done, Life on earth is really just a vapor, as James says. It's a puff of smoke. It's a blip on the radar screen because there are eternal realities in view. And there are really only two kinds of people and really only one kind of designation that really matters. And it's not whether you're a USC or UCLA fan. It's not whether you're an Italian or wished you were. It's not whether you're a have or a have not. It's not good people or bad people. All that really matters when you boil it down is are you a believer or an unbeliever in Jesus? Are you saved or unsaved? Are you found or lost? Are you a Christian or a non-Christian? Acts chapter 16 verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're not saved, you need to believe those words. If you are saved, you've got to live a life of repentance and hope and faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Worship team, come on up. We're going to sing one last song. Jesus wants you to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you, you change your mind about Jesus and he will change you. Everyone should repent and believe. But not everyone does. But there is still time if you haven't. Now, if you're like me and you come from an old school background, when you hear the song we're going to sing, you're going to go, I know what comes next. I walk down the aisle and I make a decision because we're going to sing the song that they used to sing at the end of every Billy Graham crusade. And interestingly, the worship team had this planned before they even knew what I was preaching on. But here's the deal. I don't really care if you walk down the aisle. I care if you know Jesus. I care if you're a believer that you're living a, a life of repentance and obedience. That's what I care about. You can walk down the aisle. You can come talk to me, talk to Bob, talk to one of us uh, about what it means to follow Jesus. You can come down here and pray if you want. That's a pl- good place to kneel. You can stay where you are. Either, either way, it re- that part doesn't matter. What matters is where is your heart with Jesus? Where is your heart with him? Everyone should believe and repent. Not everyone does. But there is time for you.